Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I, um, I take a day every fall, usually September, August, September, October, somewhere around there. Um, I take a day just to do a personal retreat, and I go away to a special spot in Tipton that only I know about. Well, a couple people know about it because they got to let me in, but, but it's a spot that I don't tell anyone where I'm going. It's just a way for me to get away for the day, and I spend time praying and seeking the Lord during that time. And in that time, I seek the Lord about a general idea of, of what I'm going to be preaching for the coming year. Um, it, that certainly changes some as weeks go, um, you know, where I place certain texts shift as the time goes on. But I tend to have a general idea of where I'm going for an entire year. Um, God is able to direct me for a whole year of sermons at a time as much as he's able to help uh, a person figure it out Saturday night. Um, sometimes uh, people might think that, um, you know, seeking the Lord about where you're going to preach all year is, is not seeking the Holy Spirit, but it is. The Holy Spirit's big enough to help me plan for a whole year. And we see an example of that today. Today's one of those days where the Lord put a sermon on my preaching calendar months ago, and it coincides perfectly in the fact that the text I'm preaching today is the text Heather picked to center the Easter program around tonight. We didn't talk about that. We didn't plan. It just happened. Um, she liked that text. Her daughter was learning it at school. She put it there, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's what I'm preaching that day. And so it was just a really cool thing like that. Um, come tonight. Um, it, it's it's going to be a great thing to see kids here singing these um, theologically rich e- Easter hymns tonight. Um, and then, as a bonus, there's ice cream afterwards. Um, so come at least for that. Um, Ephesians 1. It's very common today to hear people say this phrase, We are all God's children. In other words, all of us who are created by God are his children. But biblically speaking, that's not the case. Biblically speaking, being created by God does not make you his children. We are all his creation. We're not all his children. Since sin entered the world, we are not his children. We've become spiritual orphans. We've been sent out from Eden, and we can't go back. We are lost and without hope. But God provides a way to be brought back into his family, to be brought back in. This is what he wants for sinners. This is what he wants for spiritual orphans. Those who repent of their sins and believe the gospel are brought back into his family through adoption. He adopts us back. As we talk about all the things that happen when we get saved, that's what we're doing right now. Talking about salvation, today we come to the idea of being adopted into God's family. One of the greatest things that happens when you get saved is that you are adopted back into his family. We who used to be spiritual orphans have been brought back in. We see that 
in Ephesians 1. This is maybe one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Chapter 1, verses 1, verses 3 through 14. If you're an uh, English major, and, or if you're an English person, English teacher, and you could, um, it, you could read this, and if it was translated exactly like it is in Greek, it would drive you crazy because it's one big sentence. Um, there's no periods in the Greek. There is in English. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." You may remember, uh, it was, I think, May or June of last year, um, my friends Robbie and Erica were here. Robbie was my roommate in seminary. He was my best man in my wedding. Um, he did Haddon's baby dedication back probably a year ago, and they were here that day. And um, I told you that day that they were adopting from India at the time. They'd been in the process for a long time, and they hadn't gotten to go yet. Um, they were adopting from India. It had been a long process. They had began the process of adopting in 2019. That was 2021 last year. I don't, um, 2019, they began the process of adopting. Adopting involves filling out um, like a book worth of paperwork. I mean, like 300 pages, you got to fill out all the dotted lines and all the you know squares and all that. Um, a person comes to your house to do what's called a home visit. Basically, they interview you to make sure you're not crazy, and they um, examine your house to see what your home looks like, to know if this is going to be a good place for a child to be raised. Um, you have to do a, a physical, a, a health physical. You have to do various other examinations. Um, it's, a, it's already a long process, but then COVID-19 happened, which paused things and pushed it back quite a bit. Um, they were finally matched with a boy in India, um, Robbie told me it was a joy that the first time they got to see a picture of him, but it was also hard because they knew they couldn't go be with him. Um, it, it was one thing to, in, in theory, be adopting, but when there's an actual face to who you're adopting, that was a really special moment. Um, he was three, three years old when they were matched with him, but it was almost another two years before they were allowed to go get him. So they traveled to India back in November last year. Um, they met their son. They went through all the legal stuff over there to be declared his parents. They are not his false parents. They are not substitute parents. They are his parents for real. They, that their parents are his grandparents now. He has their last name. He will grow up in their family watching Kentucky basketball and eating pizza and hamburgers. He will speak their language. He will learn all their mannerisms. He is theirs. 
when they die one day, he will inherit their stuff. The Indian government made a declaration to them, and it read exactly like this. It is declared henceforth that Peter Suhan Gray is the adopted son of Mr. Robert Gray and Miss Erica Gray. He shall have all the rights of a natural-born son. That is, long before Peter had any idea what his future would hold, long, long before he could even comprehend what was going on in his life, there was a couple here in the United States who had set a plan in motion to adopt him forever. It's important that you understand what earthly adoption is like so you can understand what the adoption of God, what the adoption God does is. Because this passage opens up as glorious as it is, it opens up with a pretty controversial word, predestined. Predestined, the word predestined means to plan beforehand. The idea of predestination is that God planned salvation before it happened. It's an area of major controversy among Christians. Did God predestine you to be saved or did you get saved by your own free choice? My answer to that question is yes. Both are true. How can both of them be true? How can Jesus, or how, how can both be true? You ask that, and that's the case of a lot of teachings in Scripture, things that seem to contradict, but they don't. How can Jesus possibly be 100% God and 100% man, both at the same time when he's here on earth? How can he possibly be the, the God who's upholding the universe by the word of his power, yet if his mom drops him on the floor, it kills him? How is that possible? How is it possible that God can be one God with three persons? So is he one God, and he just has three different ways that he manifests himself? Is, is he three gods that all just happen to all be God? No, he's one God, he has three persons. I can't wrap my mind around that, but Scripture teaches that, so I believe it. I believe it. There's plenty of truths we believe as Christians that appear to contradict, but Scripture teaches both things, so we believe both. Scripture teaches that God planned our salvation ahead of time. The question is, what does that mean? That's where Christians tend to disagree. Tend to disagree what this term is about. Predestination, first of all, does not simply mean foreknowledge. Some people like to say that. Well, predestination is simply God looked forward and saw everybody who was going to believe, so he you know, foreknew them. But that's a separate thing. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So there, foreknowledge and predestination are two different things. Foreknowledge is simply knowing something beforehand. Predestination is planning something beforehand. We can't deny this is in the Bible because we can see it right there in Ephesians chapter 1. It's there. The question is, what does it mean? Traditionally, Christians have kind of divided into three different interpretations of what this means. We really don't have a clear answer in Scripture on which one is right. Maybe they all are. I, I don't know. Maybe there's a nugget of truth in each one of them. The three possible explanations to this is God predestined individuals for salvation so each person who gets saved was predestined to be saved. People point to examples like Abraham and Paul in the Bible. Abraham was not a good guy that just happened to hear the gospel and get saved. No, he was a pagan in a pagan land. And God came and said, you're mine. You're going to go from your land. Go to this place. I'm going to give you a promised land. Paul was on his way literally to murder Christians. And, and Jesus kicked him off his horse and said, you're mine. Both 
God just invaded their story, grabbed them, and told them what they were going to do. That's one interpretation of it. The second is predestination is referring to the corporate group of people, not individuals. So um, it's not about the individual. It's about a group of people. Israel was God's chosen people in the Old Testament. It was, they were his elect, his predestined people. In the New Testament, the church is God's predestined people. So God is predestined to save the church. So those who enter it by a free decision enter into that predestined um, group of people. The third one, is salvation itself is predestined, not the people who are saved, salvation itself. Some are not content to say the recipients of salvation is planned beforehand because that would take away free choice. So it's the act of salvation itself that is predestined. God knew man would fall into sin, so he planned before creation that he would send Jesus to die for sinners. Revelation 13.8 calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So Jesus isn't the lamb slain 2,000 years ago. He's the lamb slain at the foundation of the world, according to Revelation 13.8. I think there's biblical support for all three of these. I, of course, think each presents themselves with some kind of issue to wrestle with. That doesn't mean they're wrong. If you never have to wrestle with biblical truth, you're not reading Scripture rightly, it will cause you to wrestle with things that don't set right with you. But here's the fact. People usually get so tied up on the debate of predestination that they miss the glory of predestination. They get so hung up on the different views, which one's right, which one's wrong, that they miss the same truth that all of them are pointing to. Listen, long before you were born, God made a plan to adopt. He set everything in motion so that his adoption of you would be successful. Long before you sinned, long before Adam and Eve had sinned, God made a plan to redeem and adopt back spiritual orphans. God thought through everything beforehand. He meticulously planned out how he would save you. So what did that adoption include? We see that in verses 3 through 6. What did that adoption include? First of all, he chose us to be holy and blameless. When we're adopted, we're made holy and blameless. This is where one of the objections people have to predestination comes up. They imagine if God predestines, he would only choose particular people and particular types of people. But we know that's not the case, don't we? Because Jesus came to earth and he didn't only associate with the elite or the rich or the educated. He opened up his life to the worst forms of people, people you and I don't associate with. Like he went across the railroad track and he talked to the people over there and he did that regularly. He hung out with the outcast and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He did that because God is not only about, he's not about looking for those people who just have it all together. He's about taking broken people and healing them. He will take every sinner he saves, whether you're a recovering alcoholic or a recovering goody two-shoes like me, he will take you and make you holy and blameless. He will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you of your sins. He will slowly transform you to no longer desire your sin so that one day you will stand before him holy and blameless. Verse 6 says that you will be to the praise of his glorious grace. We will be an eternal example of how wonderful God is in his grace that he takes sinners and transforms them completely. Second, he adopted us as sons. Verse 5, he predestined to adopt us to himself as sons. Daughters as well, but understand what it's saying by just saying sons. 
It's not a patriarchal thing, as our society might say. It's not looking down on women, only to mention sons. No, in Paul's day, the sons, particularly the firstborn son, was the one who inherited everything. So in our day, if there's a family of five kids, let's say there's three boys, two girls, that they, they um, are the five kids, their parents die, what happens? Well, the five kids divide up the estate evenly, right? In that day, the firstborn son would have gotten it all. So you get that group of five kids. Let's even say the oldest kid is, is one of the daughters. Let's say the secondborn child is the firstborn son. That, that guy gets all of his parents' stuff. And if his four siblings are lucky, he'll share some with them. In, but, but understand, in God's kingdom, even daughters have the same status as sons. The same that male Christians are part of the bride of Christ, female Christians have the same status as a firstborn son in God's kingdom. Everything Christians inherit, look at verse 3, is it, we, we get every spiritual blessing to us. Christians don't necessarily have the same status as a firstborn. Um, I'm sorry, I, I got some lines mixed up there. Every, Christians don't necessarily have every physical blessing on the earth. If you follow Jesus, you will still get sick, and, and you won't necessarily be rich. Despite what some famous preachers might say, it's not a lack of faith if you're not healthy or rich. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places given to us, better than the physical blessings here on earth. We get the Holy Spirit in us. We get God himself living inside of us. We get citizenship in the eternal kingdom of our God. We get eternal fellowship with the God who created us. We get to be friends with the one who made the stars. I promise you, that's a lot better than a Lamborghini. It's every spiritual blessing. And on top of that, every Christian is delighted over. Every Christian is delighted over by God. You need to hear this. If you're saved, God delights over you. He isn't just disappointed with you all the time. He's not always, you know, face palming at you. He's not always up in heaven shaking his head thinking, why did they do that? They're so stupid. Because that's what you think God is like. That's what culture teaches you to think God is like. That's how we often imagine he is because that's how we are. That's who we are. When someone does something that annoys me, it doesn't take much to frustrate me. God's not like me. God delights over his children with, with, with holy and perfect love. I love my son. About 95% of the time, I look at my son and can't put into words how much I love him. I just want to grab him and snuggle him. But there's about 5% of the time, if he catches me in the right moment where I'm sinful, that I think, kid, leave me alone. I got stuff to do. Where I'm like, man, I wish he would stop making noise. I need some peace and quiet. That's my sinful self there. God's not like me. Understand, God 100% of the time delights in his children fully. He's not sitting in heaven face-palming at your failure. No, you fell into sin for the four millionth time again. That's four million times that the blood of his son has covered you. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And God looks on you as though you were Jesus, his perfect, spotless son. That is why it's so important that you understand your adoption. So how is the adoption accomplished? Verses 7 through 10. 
How was the adoption accomplished? It was accomplished by Jesus. He, he accomplished it. Notice the whole, in this 3 through 14, the whole trinity is at work. God the Father is verses 3 through 6. God the Son is verses 7 through 10. And God the Holy Spirit is verses 11 through 14. We'll get to him in a minute. Um, the adoption was accomplished by Jesus. God planned the adoption. Jesus accomplished it. The Holy Spirit is going to make it secure. Remember the uh, beginning of Jesus' ministry? Um, he, he went to the Jordan River and he got baptized. And John baptized him and brought him up. And what happened? The Spirit came out of heaven like a dove and rested on Jesus. And God spoke out of the heavens. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I am well pleased in this son. That's what he says. Then we get to the end of the story of Jesus, what we're going to celebrate this week. And Jesus gets put on the cross. And what happens? Well, Jesus experiences what we all deserve. God's wrath is poured out on him for our sin. And God turns his back on Jesus. What does Jesus cry out on the cross? He cries out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Now he is forsaken by God. Why? To trade places with us. Jesus in that moment didn't have the fellowship with his father he had always known so that now we could. Jesus in that moment took our fate so that in Christ we could be looked on by God and him say, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He says that about you if you're a Christian. Jesus traded places with us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore our punishment so God could look on us as sons. God gives us through Christ mercy and grace. You see mercy in verse 7. You see grace in verse um, 7 and 8. Mercy and grace. What's the difference in the two? Well, mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's not getting what you deserve. So if you get a speeding ticket and you go to the, um, the, the courthouse and the judge looks at you and says, you know, you owe me $100 for speeding, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pay it myself and, and you can go. You, you don't get what you deserve there. You deserve to pay $100 in that case. That's mercy. Mercy from God, he says there is forgiveness, forgiveness of our trespasses, that is all of our sins counted innocent. Our sin is what keeps us from fellowship with God. He forgives them, he forgives us, so now he can bring us back into his family. But not only forgiveness, redemption, redemption, verse 7, through his blood. God doesn't just forgive you and leave you free from sin, no, he redeems you from them. Our sins are owned us, Jesus gave his blood as the payment to buy us back from our sin. Now he, now God owns us, but not as a slave, as a son. And then we get grace. That's the end of verse 7 and all of verse 8. What is grace? It's the opposite of mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So you get that speeding ticket and you go to the judge and you're going to pay it. And he says, you know, I'm not going to charge you for the speeding ticket. Also, there's a brand new car out back of this courthouse. It's yours. That's grace. You don't deserve that. In fact, you're probably going to speed with that thing. He, he, he can see. God gives you mercy and he gives you grace. 
Now he can, because he's brought you back into his family, because he's forgiven your sins and redeemed you from them, he can bring you into his family and he can lavish his grace upon you. That's the word it uses, lavished. He will lavish it on you. It's, it's like this, it, it's, it's, it makes me think of like a waterfall. Like, like you know, I, I, I rode a boat out into, you know, I rode the Maid of the Mist out to Niagara Falls, and they took me under the waterfall, and I'm under the waterfall, and it's falling on my head. Probably very painful, but you get the idea. That's what's going on. When you receive God's grace, he pours it on you like that, never ending, never enough. It's like he, he just never stops giving you grace. He never stops pouring it out on you extravagantly. The same way you continually pour out goodness on your children. They don't need any more toys but you buy them more. They don't need the new iPhone. They've got a perfectly good iPhone, but you buy it for them. But God doesn't do this the, the way we f- foolishly do sometimes. Sometimes parents buy their kids stuff like that, like that it's, it's only building in the materialism rather than gratitude. No, God lavishly pours out blessing and grace upon us because we are his children and he delights in us. And he does it in such a way that it transforms us away from our old self into our a redeemed self. This was all part of God's will. We see that in um, verses 9 and 10. He, he makes it known. He's made known to us the mystery of his will doing this. He redeemed sinners. He, he redeemed us with his blood. He forgave us of our trespasses, and he poured out his grace on us lavishly to make known the mystery of his will. This is the will of God. This is what he wants to do. He pulled back the curtains in this moment and showed you what his will was through saving us and pouring grace out on us. God's will is to be generous and gracious forever. He's always been like that since before he created the universe. Think about the fact. That's one of the great things about the fact that God is one God in three persons. That means God didn't create you because he was lonely. Don't think so highly of yourself. No, before creation, God was not lonely. He had a perfect friendship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity, each of them showing infinite love to each other. And then in Philippians 2, we know Jesus left his throne. He generously gave himself to us. He gives himself to us generously in saving us. And for all of eternity, he will pour out his grace on us more and more. This is what he wants to do. He wants to be a generous God who pours out his grace and goodness on us forever. And he will thus return, we will thus return and praise him for how magnificent he is. But not only doing this for us, look at verse 10. He's going to do this for the entire universe. The entire universe. This is his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. His plan is is to redeem the entire universe. He's going to unite all things in Christ. Heaven, in in this case, maybe think of heaven as not the place we go where we die, but the little heaven, like, you know, the stars and the moon and outer space, because that's heaven in the Bible too. Heaven and earth, all things in the created universe are under a curse currently. It's why we die. 
It's why this flower here is going to die one day. It's why stars burn out and go dark. Everything in the universe is under the curse of sin. It has fractured the cosmos. And when history comes to a close, Jesus will renew creation. He will graciously and lavishly pour out his generosity onto the entire universe. And for all eternity, God will do that. God can't get enough of pouring out his grace. He has an eternal supply of it and just wants to give it freely forever. This is our inheritance as adopted children. Now, part of being adopted is what often happens to adopted children. Often, adopted kids struggle to accept their place in the home, in this new family. Sometimes they run away, not really believing they're loved by their parents. Maybe they were abandoned by their birth parents, and so they imagine that's exactly what these new adopted parents are going to do, and so they act out. Sometimes they run away not believing that the parents love them. Sometimes they assume their adoptive parents are going to um, abuse them the way their biological parents did. They doubt their adoption. And sometimes this happens with our salvation, doesn't it? So we run from God, not truly believing we are eternally loved by him. We don't know the true intimacy with God that we could because we assume that we can't truly get as close to God as he wants us to get to him. Surely he's trying to lure us in to destroy us for our failure. But these are all the lies of the devil. You have, this is verses 11 through 14, you have the Holy Spirit. It, this, your inheritance, along with his generous grace, is that he gives you the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. He is, it says he's the guarantee, verse 14, he's the guarantee of our salvation, of our inheritance. The fact that God, the Spirit, came to live in you when you were saved is the guarantee that God has adopted you and wants you completely. You were sealed with the Spirit. Think of a letter that would be sent to a king and they would take that little wax seal and stamp it on it and only the person with the authority to open that seal is allowed to open the seal it's it's guaranteed that's going to get sent to the king and nobody is to open it except the king we have been sealed by the holy spirit in the same way and we will not be opened until we arrive at glory a lot of these things about salvation that we've talked about over the past few weeks, going to continue to talk about, they overlap. They're tied together. We will talk more in a couple weeks about the fact that you can't lose your salvation. You can't lose it. It's secure because God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. Now, verses 11 and 12, being sealed, being adopted, guarantees two things. Guarantees two things. First of all, verse 11, God will use everything in our lives for our good. He will use everything in our lives for our good. He works, verse 11, works everything according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8, 28, you probably know this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That means even the worst things that happen to you in your life are being used for your good. You may not see that this side of heaven, you may not get an answer for why that specific thing happened in your life in this side of eternity. But he says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. You remember what his will is earlier in the passage is to generously pour out his grace upon you. He works all things according to the counsel to do that. We, we like to say things like 
God didn't want that to happen. But in some ways, he did, no matter what it is, no matter how bad. He does not inflict evil on people, but he will allow bad things to happen because he has an eternal perspective and can see how those things are going to be used for the good of his children. The same thing happens with me as a parent when I tell my son no. Sometimes I have to grab my son by the arm and yank him back so he doesn't run out in the street. He thinks I'm stealing fun from him. Sometimes I have to point my finger in his face and say, we do not smack mom in the face, buddy. Sometimes I have to tell him, buddy, you've already had two cookies and dinners in an hour. You don't need any more right now. In those moments, I ruin his day. And his little mind can't understand why I'm being so cruel to him. But I'm doing these things because I love him and I know what's best for him. My will for him is not cruel. It's just wiser than his. It knows more than he does. God's will toward you is not cruel. He just knows more than you do. And he knows how to make all things work together for your good. Your life is like a tapestry. You ever seen a tapestry? Beautiful image on one side. You flip it around, messy conglomeration of yarn going in every direction. Your life is like that tapestry. The back of the tapestry is a jumbled mess of string. But when you flip it around, it's a beautiful image. You don't understand what all the strings are going to right now, but they're all pointing to a beautiful image. So first, being adopted means that we, um, we, God will use everything in our lives for good. He won't cause evil things to happen to you, but he will use evil things in your life for good in your life. But secondly, it causes you to have hope in Christ. Verse 12, you have hope. We were the first to hope in Christ. We might be to the praise of his glory. We have rock-solid hope because we've been adopted that God loves us and he is for us. We have rock-solid hope that he will do what is good for us always. We have rock-solid hope that he will always pour out his grace on us extravagantly. The main thing you need to know about the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of things we can talk about with the Holy Spirit, but the main job of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. It's to make Jesus look beautiful. He takes the back seat, he he goes behind the curtains, and Jesus comes out on the stage in the spotlight, and the Holy Spirit makes sure everything works out in the show so that Jesus gets all the attention. So the Holy Spirit inside of you is constantly telling you, look at Jesus, Hope in Jesus. Be amazed by Jesus. He wants to draw all of your attention to Jesus. You know, Robbie and Erica went to India. They picked up Peter. They brought him home. And now forever, Peter has a home and a family. Forever. He's never going to have to live in an orphanage again. And the same is true for you. God sent his son to come and redeem you with his blood, and then he gave you his spirit that you would forever have a home and a family. He adopted you. He chose before he created the world that he would make you holy and blameless before him, and he accomplished it completely. So the next time you doubt the Lord... The next time you think you don't measure up, that you think that the Lord can't possibly love you because of how many times you've failed, the next time your old life draws you back and pulls you in, remember, you've been adopted. There's still a home there for you. 
And it is declared henceforth that you are an adopted son of God Almighty, and you shall have all the rights of a natural-born son. That's your story, adopted children. So welcome home. You who once were an orphan, you're now a beloved son with all those rights and privileges. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you have adopted us, that you have made us yours. Lord, you didn't just, you didn't just forgive our sins. We praise you for forgiving our sins. Even more than that, you brought us in. You gave us a home. You made us new. What a wonderful God you are. Lord, I pray that you'll make us know more and more how great that adoption is, and we will live under that waterfall of grace that you pour out on us. Give us great joy in that. Transform us in your grace and make us more and more find our home in you. In Jesus' name, amen.